Welcome to the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series with Dr. Dave Chatterjee. Dr. Chatterjee is the author of Cybersecurity Readiness, a holistic and high-performance approach by Sage Publishing. He has been studying cybersecurity for over a decade, authored and edited scholarly papers, delivered talks, conducted webinars, consulted with companies, and served on a cybersecurity SWAT team with Chief Information Security Officers. Dr. Chatterjee is an Associate Professor of Management Information Systems at the Terry College of Business, the University of Georgia, and Visiting Professor at Duke University's Pratt School of Engineering. Hello, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome you to this episode of the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series, where I'll be talking with Professor Robert Austin of Ivy Business School, located in London, Ontario, Canada. Professor Austin is a highly distinguished educator with extensive experience and accomplishments in academia and industry. He has worked at major multinational corporations in the automotive and technology sector. He has also been the Dean of a business school and the CEO of an executive education foundation. Rob is also an experienced C-level consultant to multinational companies He has been a faculty chair, member in executive education programs at Harvard Business School, Harvard Medical School, Ivy Business School, and elsewhere. He's also the author of several books and more than 100 articles and cases. Rob, welcome. Thank you for making time to share your expertise with my listeners. To get the ball rolling, I'd like you to talk to our listeners about the cyber attack simulation that you have authored. And for the benefit of the listeners, this simulation is accessible from the Harvard Business Publishing website. Sure, it's it's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So this simulation, um, it, uh, it basically uh, engages participants in a real-time uh, cyber attack. So, uh, it's, uh, you experience it as a flow of events that unfold in real time. Uh, you were asked to make decisions uh, that are, as much as we could make them, modeled on the kinds of decisions that you would face uh, in a situation like this. Uh, you have to, during the attack, uh, you have to coordinate with team members, with the people who you work for, uh, as well as with you know partners, partners at hosting facilities and various other um, uh, people who, not all of whom uh, are people that you necessarily want involved in the problem solving. Sometimes people inject themselves into situations like this in ways that are not entirely helpful. Uh, Also, another feature of the simulation is that not everything unfolds uh, as you expect it to, uh, and you have to process that. Uh, The scenario in this simulation is that they're experiencing a DDoS attack, a distributed denial of service attack, but they begin to suspect that there might also be an intrusion uh, that has occurred. And of course, a DDoS attack doesn't necessarily imply an intrusion, but some things start to look suspicious as they start to investigate what's going on with the DDoS attack. The, um, The DDoS attack seems to have defeated some of their defenses and they can't figure out why that would be the case uh, right away. Uh, another feature of the, the simulation is that you, the information that you have is not sufficient to fully understand what's happening, but you're still being called on to make decisions, which I think is another realistic feature. Uh, that's kind of the first part of the simulation. The second part, and, and so that goes on you know, with a timer, with a clock counting down, The second part of the simulation, though, has to do with, uh, I think, an important problem in the aftermath of a cyber attack, and that's, what do I say about what has happened? And what's very difficult about those situations frequently, as you know, uh, Dave, is that often you're called on to say something about it before you have a fully confident assessment of what uh, has actually happened. And so so that, that can be very difficult. Uh, one of the reasons I like simulations like this is it's possible when you sit down to plan to imagine that you have a plan and you know what you would do, but it can be quite difficult 
to actually do, to actually execute your plan. So it's one thing to plan. It's another thing to be able to actually uh, walk the talk, if you like. Uh, and that's one of the things I think the simulation uh, shows us. Yeah, uh, you know, I've had the pleasure of reviewing the simulation. I plan to use it in my upcoming class at Duke. I find it fascinating the way you have it set up. And I feel it will definitely uh, achieve some of the learning objectives that you spelled out, such as discovering human biases that lead to ineffective behavior while responding to a crisis in real time, recognizing the importance of crisis preparedness, learning to uh, ascertain and manage priorities during a crisis, uh, practice collaboration and decision-making, to structure effective diagnosis and response and more. So uh, kind of backing up a little bit as I reflect on this simulation tool that you have available for executives, for students, it does uh, offer an opportunity to assess organizational readiness from a cybersecurity standpoint. Uh, what else does it accomplish based on your experience of using it out there? Yeah, so I think what one of the things that happens in the aftermath of the experience of the simulation itself is it often provokes a very useful discussion. Uh, we, um, one, of my, one of the principles that I like to put forth when, when we talk about simulations is that you, know, it, you learn something from a simulation, but you learn even more from discussing the experience that you had in the simulation. So the debrief after the simulation is, is you know, probably the most important part. And uh, what you discover, uh, I mentioned this kind of before, right? That, that what you discover when you go through a simulation is that it's harder to do things that you assume that you would do than you expected. And you know, one of the things about events unfolding in real time is that, um, you know, you have the, 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 the information comes to you in the wrong order and incomplete. And so you have to do sense making despite uh, this, the, the situation not being very ideal for that. And these are some of the things that you realize after the experience and that you can talk about it. It leads you to realize that there may be holes in your preparedness plan. Uh, there may be things that you've assumed you could do that you can't actually pull off in the heat of the crisis. And so I'd say that's that's one of the big things is the quality of the conversation that you have about your preparedness plans after a simulation, I think is really quite high. That it, it causes you to realize some things that can cause you to make material improvements in your plans. Okay. And how would you compare this particular simulation exercise with you know the tabletop exercises that organizations are known to conduct yeah i think those can be really good too right and in fact that to be perfectly honest the genesis of this online simulation was a tabletop simulation right it's it's sort of a uh, it's an automated version of something that we used to run uh, in in a lot of different situations in a lot less animated fashion but, um, but I do think there's something to, um, and one of the things that's, that people say is a striking feeling after you know, having gone through the simulation is, is that clock just keeps ticking and things come at you in an order and at a time when, um, you know, that you, you basically don't have any control over the clock and uh, how the things are unfolding in time. And while that can be part of a tabletop simulation, I think it's, uh, it's especially impressive, <laughs> I think, when you're, uh, when you're experiencing it in the, in the online setting. But, you know, I'm a fan of those too. I'm a fan of the, uh, the um, tabletop settings. And um, they, they're also kind of, uh, they have flexibility advantages, right? You can, uh, you can quickly redesign them. You can uh, add things to them and so forth. So, I kind of like the idea of using tools like this one, this automated simulation tool in conjunction with other, other kinds of activities like planning, like uh, less automated simulations, like case discussions, right? So one of the things that we have sometimes done is that we'll have a case discussion about a company being attacked 
And the situation parallels fairly closely the situation in the simulation. And people decide what they think they would do. And then the uh, in the next session, we have them run the simulation and they discover, you know, kind of how unfolding real events make shambles of their plans uh, in, in some cases. So that's a very useful thing to, uh, to realize is that it's unlikely you're going to be able to execute everything exactly according to plan. Absolutely. You can plan as much as you want, but when it comes to execution, it can be a very different experience. And I think uh, such simulation exercises can be very helpful to management. Uh, talking about case studies, case discussions, I wanted to mention to my listeners that uh, Professor Austin was one of the authors of a, of a case called iPremier. And uh, to the best of my knowledge, it's one of the few graphically written cases where essentially you're seeing a whole bunch of cartoons uh, that describe the scenario and then walk you through the, the next steps as you use the case. And you can use that case for simulation as well. Um, Rob, if I remember correctly, that case was authored as early as uh, 2002 or 2003, what was the, give the listeners a little bit of a background of the iPremier case. Yeah, you're right about that, that it's actually by now quite an old case. And we usually think that old cases get out of date. But one of the things, I think you and I have talked about this before, one of the things that's remarkable about that case is the issues are still with us, yes. right? And so um, we've actually updated it a bit over the years to to uh, take into account things like, um, you know, now people are better at defending against denial of service attacks, uh, things like that. But um, but the truth is, this case, I think it was 2001, actually, when we wrote the first version of it. And the world really was different then. Uh a guy named uh, Chris Darby and I wrote the very first Harvard Business Review article about cybersecurity. It was called The Myth of IT Security. And that was published in 2003. And, uh, you know, the, part of the lead up to that was writing this iPremier case. And believe it or not, I mean, it's hard to imagine this now, but we had to work hard to convince them that cybersecurity was something that CEOs should think about. Right uh, in uh, in the uh, in those in that time frame, late '90s, early 2000, uh, it probably took us two or three years to convince them that this is something that should be, uh, you know, on the table when the senior senior team discusses uh, the important issues for the firm. But yeah, it is also the case you're describing. In 2009, we turned it into what we call a graphic novel version. Mm -hmm. uh, it worked with a professor, uh, Jeremy Short who uh, has done a lot of interesting research around whether that might be a good mode to get information across to people in. And, uh, you know, we, uh, there's a little bit of resistance to that idea too, because uh, I remember somebody saying to me, tell me again why we need a comic book with the Harvard Business School logo at the top of it. Huh. But, um, but in the end, uh, we prevailed. It was the first graphic novel uh, business school case at Harvard. Since then, there have been more. Uh, because uh, there there are people who uh, who quite like to use those, and I happen to be one of them. I, I found uh, that approach to writing cases to be extremely interesting. It's dramatic, and uh, it gets students' attention. Um, moving along, um, Rob, you have such a lot of experience in the technology space, of course, in the cybersecurity space. As you look at the big picture, as you reflect on how things are evolving over a period of time. You mentioned about you all writing the first article in 2001 at the Harvard Business Review. What has changed? What are your concerns? What are your, what is your assessment of where things are going? What can we do better? Yeah, I, um, I'm probably, you know, I, there are other people who I would go to for the authoritative version on where things are going. Uh, for years in my executive program at Harvard uh, that was targeted at chief information officers, I used to go to a guy named Dan Gear, And uh, he, I would still recommend going out on the web and finding out what he's talking about lately. Uh, Dan was trained as a, um, 
was trained as a, a healthcare statistician, an epidemiologist, basically. Uh, and he has always approached cybersecurity from a similar sort of a, a, a standpoint. And so he's always come up with interesting conclusions. But of course, you know, he was one of the very first people who said uh, that um, we're losing, right? That the, uh, the, threats, the threats are getting more sophisticated much faster than we can advance the defenses. And I guess that, um, I mean, you, I, I guess I'd ask you that too, Dave, but you know, that seems to me true still, that, yes, yes. Uh, that the um, nation states are involved in the uh, threats now. Uh, the, um, there's a lot of very sophisticated attacks. We're working on some cases now uh, about companies that, you know, have had very dire problems with ransomware attacks. And um, so, um, it, you know, and, and people are still not, still not prepared. Uh, despite hearing these stories about companies that blink out of existence. I mean, one of the cases we're working on right now, one of the serious options on the table was just declare bankruptcy for this company and start another one uh, because they couldn't, um, you know, they couldn't fix it. Uh, now they did eventually fix it, but it was for a funny reason. Uh, they'd worked with a vendor who didn't thought their network was too slow. And the vendor took a whole copy of an instance of their systems to a different environment to work on uh, improvements and enhancements to the system. And it turned out to be very lucky that he had um, a recent version of the system because uh, everything was messed up. The backups were messed up. Uh, and if this guy hadn't taken, it basically took the, the company systems offsite in, it wasn't quite a thumb drive, but it was like that, right? <laughs> and uh, they were, uh, they've never been more relieved than discover that somebody else had taken their systems offsite. Um, there's software, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's hard to believe that uh, organizations can be so underprepared. And again, it's not fair to generalize, but uh, as you mm -hmm. mentioned, the reality of it is the attack surfaces are expanding thanks to increasing digitization, and that's not gonna stop. Hack, the hackers are getting increasingly sophisticated. It's a pretty mature industry now, so that's not going to stop. So organizations don't have a choice but to put on their best game and be as prepared as they can, they can be. And planning is important, but you know, testing the planning is equally important. And that's where uh, every possible help, including using simulations, should be uh, leveraged to enhance the, um, their extent of readiness. No, no I agree. The, uh, the other thing I would point out there is the human side is super important, right? That, uh, I mean, you talked about the, um, the attack surfaces growing. And, you know, one of the things I also teach uh, my students these days is you know, when we talk about platform economics and the power of network effects and a lot of business models now are powered by network effects. You know, the idea that we want to add as many people as possible or as many nodes as possible to a network because the value of the network is increasing faster than the rate at which we're increasing the size of the network. And, you know, this is the power of companies like Google and Facebook and all these platforms but one of the things that this also implies is that, you know, we're working very hard to add nodes to the network, but often every node is a potential attack point as well. So we have these business models that are driving us, you know, I guess what I'd say is the, um, the increasing attack surface is being driven by business models. And um, I don't know where that ends, <laughs> you know? Yeah, you know, it's, it's like we are trying to get better we are engaging in, as we call it, the, the uh, digital transformation of businesses. And while we engage in that, we create more problems for, for ourselves. The other day, I was talking in the classroom about uh, highly integrated systems, and I was sharing with students how important it is for information to flow seamlessly from one point to the other without any disruption. And I was sharing with them the history of... Uh, you know, siloed um, organizations, siloed systems, and how, why and how that happens. 
And then I told them, I said, you know what, as I think about it, maybe there are some benefits of systems not being well integrated. Systems, <laughs> yeah. systems being disconnected. Maybe there are some advantages from a cybersecurity standpoint. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, you, um, you've probably used this material too, but um, the Charles Perrault's uh, book on normal accidents uh, is interesting here because he points out that one of the, uh, you know, one of the characteristics of systems that experience what he calls normal accidents, these, these situations where low probabilities line up to disastrous effect. One of the characteristics that, of systems that have this is what he calls tight coupling. Uh, and another, um, another way of saying tight coupling, I think is exactly what you were just talking about, right? How integrated information flow is across the system. So, you know, it's another situation where we're actually doing our very best to create what, you know, uh, in one context is a really good thing, right? Yeah, integration yeah. of information flow. But you know, taken from another perspective, like a, an information security perspective, uh, that's tight coupling. And we probably are going to see more normal accidents as a result. Um, and that's that's actually not even, uh, normal accidents are, are accidents, right? There's not even, even any bad guys in those stories. So um, you add bad guys and it, it all starts to get even more complicated. But I'd like to think it's not hopeless, but <laughs> but it does look pretty formidable. <laughs> it is formidable. It's keeping everyone on their toes. Um, and organizations can no longer afford to consider cybersecurity as something that can be outsourced. I'm, I'm a huge proponent of considering cybersecurity as an, in, as an integral part of uh, business objectives. Uh, in fact, cybersecurity is a strategic competency that's going to determine the, the long-term success of organizations. So the mindset has to really change. There was a time when I was impressing upon executives about investing in very robust technology infrastructure, and I was using the word strategic investments. And I was told that, Dave, uh, if you're not investing in things that's going to generate sales, we don't really call them strategic. And I said, I said, I agree, but I think we have to change that mindset a little bit because if your business doesn't exist, you wouldn't have anything to sell. So you have to first understand what keeps your engine running and you have to secure that uh, before you can do anything else. So cybersecurity is one of those things, a core uh, component of business operations today that can, cannot be ignored and that needs to be get front and center attention of top management. And that brings up uh, a question that I'd like to put out there and get your perspective. Uh, what are you seeing in terms of best practices of actively engaging top management in cybersecurity planning, execution, monitoring, anything that stands out? Yeah, I don't know if I know uh, of, um, I don't know if I have um, sort of a methodology for best practice for dealing with execs. I know examples of senior execs that do a good job in, um, you know, they take an interest. And, um, you know, uh, probably more impressive or memorable are the situations that you see where that's not happening, right? Where um, people go to their corners, basically. Uh, we worked with a company one time where um, the CEO invited us in to assess their IT capability. And I think when what we discovered after we'd been there for a while is that what he was really kind of looking for was a reason to get rid of his current IT leadership, right? He, uh, he didn't like them. He, um, they made his head hurt. Uh, he wanted them to just take care of things. Uh, and so when, uh, and he was also, he was kind of a, he was a business leader. He's a big, a big guy physically. He was kind of belligerent. And um, what we discovered was the biggest dysfunction in the organization is that when he got belligerent and started, um, you know, sort of throwing his weight around or yelling, or it wasn't always actual yelling, but um, the IT management, the CIO 
he dove for cover, right? Understandably, I think. Um, and so uh, ultimately what we ended up recommending is that um, that this company hire uh, a, an IT leader, a senior digital leader who would not dive for cover, who would, um, who would go head to head with, uh, with the uh, executive. But to be perfectly honest, that didn't work very well either. Uh, and so I think, you know, I think the ultimate difficulties in a situation like that have to do with the senior leadership, like the non, the, the business leadership. Um, the companies that do well at this are the ones where the, the senior executives take this seriously uh, and where they're willing to engage on it. <clears throat> a lot of times um, I see executives who I mean, you don't have to become a, a, a digital expert, right, as a Correct. CEO, but you do have to engage with it, I think, and you have to ask questions, and you have to s not just want it to go away. Um, and, you know, there are boards that can help with this. Uh, one of my frequent colleagues, uh, you know, our co-authors, Dick Nolan, he and Warren McFarlane uh, wrote um, and I think it was HBR, Sloan Management Review article on how boards can help with this, how boards can be yep. involved. Um, but that's, uh, you know, that's pretty hit or miss, I think, from company to company, how, how well that works. So, yeah, uh, I mean, that's kind of even what I have been um, noticing based on my work, uh, based on my field work, that um, there are organizations where the leadership is extremely committed. In fact, the first podcast that I did in this series, um, I had the president of a major insurance provider who made a very strong statement of how committed their organization is and how every um, C-level executive in that organization uh, you know, takes advantage of cybersecurity training opportunities to up their skills, up their level of awareness. And to your point, uh, we, are not talk we are not talking about creating a cybersecurity expert of everybody in the organization. And uh, that connects to the human factor that you mentioned a little while ago. And the way I look at it is organizations with resources will have a cyber team. And mm -hmm. they are definitely part of the solution. But for a solution to be truly effective, we, the organization has to engage every member and that extends even to their partners. Mm. So in other yeah. words, cybersecurity readiness needs to become everybody's business. And that's the way it needs to be pitched, not as something that is technical and that remains in the domain of the highly specialized operators and I absolutely believe in them. They're of great value, but they have to be complemented by folks who are doing regular work and who have to do their part in ensuring that they are taking every step so that the vulnerability is reduced at their end mm. or at their level. Uh, yeah, no, I agree. And you know, the thing you said earlier about the, um, the company that told you, if it doesn't contribute to sales, it, it can't be strategic. Um, you know, I think one of the things that I, I find helpful along these lines is um, there is a, a framework that Warren McFarland, his professor at Harvard Business School, uh, he many years ago, 19, early 1970s, I think, um, created something that people now call the McFarland grid, right? It's a two by two. <laughs> we love two by twos in our business schools, right? Yep, yep. And um, on the one axis is sort of the strategic importance of IT. And that has to do with things like, is does it generate additional sales, right? Does it generate differences from our um, competitors that they have a hard time matching? So that's on one axis. The other axis though, is operational dependence on IT. And that has to do with, you know, if my IT systems fail, how soon do I have a problem? Is it a day? Is it a minute? Is it a microsecond? And um, when I when I, uh, I when I try to get across to you know I teach a lot of general managers. I'm sure you do too, MBA students mm -hmm. and executives and so forth, who um, you know they're trying to understand or I'm trying to help them understand how IT actually functions as a value creation uh, activity within their organization. 
And what I do with the McFarland grid is I say, look, th these are the two reasons to spend money or to invest money in digital technology, the two axes of the McFarland grid. One of them is you know, what you think it would be. It's to create sales, to generate sales, to generate uh, competitive advantage over your rivals. That's the, uh, that's the one axis. But the other one that gets less press and gets less attention is the operational dependence. And um, you invest on that axis to ensure yourself against that operational dependence because as much value as we get on the one axis out of IT, it also you know, causes companies to become operationally dependent on IT. And this is one of the points McFarland made way back then, is that companies don't tend to become strategically reliant on IT without also becoming operationally reliant on them. And so, so um, you know, on the one hand, the two reasons, as I say to my MBA students, there's two reasons to spend money on IT. One is to achieve some kind of strategic advantage, some business advantage that we can all relate to. But the other is to avoid some sort of uh, operational threat, uh, to ensure against it, to uh, remediate it, or to reduce its severity when it happens. And those are equally legitimate reasons to spend money on technology. Uh, the second one, it has the problem you described though, right? I mean, the way it, another way I used to say it in my uh, CIO executive program at Harvard is, you know, the, the dilemma of IT security is that if you do everything that you're supposed to do, and as a result, your company does well and is not, you know, does not suffer uh, IT security events, the result is nothing happens, right? And it's hard to get credit for nothing happens. Uh, you know, I think I think we think very alike because that's one of the things I uh, emphasize or I highlight in my talks. Uh, I, I approach it a little differently, but the same thing. I say, you know, the job of a CISO can be considered a thankless job in many ways because you don't hear much about the effectiveness of the CISO function uh, as long as things are going well. But when things go in the wrong direction, then some of the first heads to roll come from that unit. And I don't think that's a fair or that's a substantive, substantive approach. It's more of a symbolic approach that, yeah, we are reacting. We are reacting promptly. We mean business. But there could be much more to the reason why the organization was compromised and it could go beyond uh, individuals. It could be somewhere down deep down in the processes and other areas. So it's really important to take a holistic approach. Uh, you talked about spending in technology, similarly spending in cyber, and you might you will agree that it's not just about spending a certain amount of money or sp spending in comparison to the industry average. It's about how and where you are spending. What's the thinking behind it? And that's, pre that's precisely why Cybersecurity strategy formulation, cybersecurity strategic investments require senior level involvement, cross-functional involvement. It's not something that you should let, you should outsource as let a group of people deal with it. And like you said earlier, that you just don't want to think about it. It's something that comes in the way of your organizational goals and you'd rather have somebody else. You just have to accept the reality and face it. I think that's probably the best approach under the circumstances. So, so yeah, sorry. Hmm. No, I, I'm just agreeing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, uh, it's, 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 a, it's one of those uh, ongoing challenges, ongoing battles that's gonna continuously keep organizations for lack of a better word, distracted, but that's where they have to find a balance where they keep the war or the fight against cybersecurity going while they continue their, um, their operations as effectively as possible. Um, you, yes. were saying so you were saying, saying something, I didn't mean to interrupt, uh, Rob. No, no, um, I just, I, um, when you were talking about 
how there are uh, there are differences right between mm -hmm. companies it's not a matter of how much you spend mm -hmm. uh as a um a percentage of your sales or profits or whatever um one of the things that reminds me of is uh, eric brinjolson uh at mit who whose work i'm sure you know yeah. he's uh, done a lot of work showing that uh it does actually create value that adds uh productivity and other forms of value to the company and there's a graph that uh, he, he did a study where they, they kind of normalized for the size of the company, how much companies were spending on IT, and then they plotted it against uh, productivity increases. And you do get an upward sloping line. Um, but the data, of course, if you plot the data as a scatter graph uh, on, on the uh, against the two axes, it's, of course, not a perfect line. It's more like a football, right? It's like a upwardly sloping football. And one of the things that has always um, been important in the way, to, seemed important to me, is that if you draw a straight line vertically through that football, there are some people who are well above the average line and some people who are well below the average line in terms of the value they're extracting, but they're both spending the same amount of money, uh, you know, normalized for size of company. So, so you know, for any amount of money you spend, there's uh, you you might spend. There are some companies that are putting it together into an, in a in a very effective way, and there are other companies that are underperforming given the amount that they're spending. So it kind of goes to the point of what you were just saying. It matters how, right? It doesn't matter how much you're spending if you're not also thinking about how you're spending it. You know, recently I was uh, speaking with a legal expert. And she made a very telling point. She said, Dave, um, when cybersecurity breaches go to a court of law and the judge or the jury are evaluating whether an organization had done their due diligence, had made the necessary investments, they take into consideration the organization size and the expectations are very reasonable. So there is no expectation that a company that is say half the size of a GE or has half the resources of a GE should have the same level of uh, investments in cybersecurity as GE. I'm just using a, a hypothetical example here. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of uh, the, the way to approach it is a very realistic, very practical approach as to you know, who we are, what's our context, what can we afford? And most importantly, how well are we doing these things? Whether it's training, whether it's simulation, whether it's enhancing awareness, um, it, you know, there is a method to all of this. You mentioned a couple of frameworks, there are lots of guidance out there. One thing is to have the guidance. The other thing is to follow them well, assess the effectiveness of the implementation Make, make adjustments and it's a continuous process. And that's where I think the difference lies with companies who are more likely to be resilient and recover a lot faster than others. So that's kind of the way I see it. Yeah, well, and uh, as you said before, we see, we see things uh, a lot the same way. Um. <laughs> So uh, moving along, um, Rob, from the stand, uh, do you have any thoughts on uh, shared ownership and responsibility? You, you mentioned about this vendor helping out a company that almost went underground and was able to get their operations started up again because they had a copy of their instance, of their technology instance. Um, in that spirit, and especially in a highly networked economy, you talked about uh, network effects, platform, platform economics. Uh, you know, you'll agree that in today's day and age, it's not company A competing against company B, it's the network of company A versus the network of company B. So in that kind of a highly networked, uh, distributed kind of an environment, what, uh, what, structures or mechanisms could be in place so that business leaders, technology leaders, security leaders 
work together. They're incentivized to work together as opposed to taking the approach, it's your problem, not mine. Yeah, I um, I don't, again, I don't really think I have the silver bullet for this, but I do think one of the things that can help with this is uh, what I might call a, an ecosystem mindset. Um, and, you know, I think I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged a bit because people are talking a lot more about ecosystems, it seems to me these days, business ecosystems. And, you know, the idea that our ability to do well with business models and with a lot of other things are interdependent, right? Um, one of the one of the things that reminds me of is uh, Marco Iancidi, who is a professor at Harvard Business School, wrote a book. Uh, I couldn't, I can't tell you uh, off the top of my head the name or the year, <clears throat> but it was about it was about um, you know this is before everybody was talking about ecosystems. And it was comparing a lot of business systems to biological systems. And one of the points that I remember coming out or, you know, leaping out at me about that is that we don't see biological ecosystems flourish when one party within the ecosystem, um, you know, succeeds at the expense of the others, right? That the, uh, if, if, a, um, if a powerful member of an ecosystem succeeds in uh, gaining most of the advantage that's available in the ecosystem, then the ecosystem becomes unhealthy. And so this attitude that, you know, to do well ourselves, we must all do well, is um, I think a general principle that is worth thinking about in our, you know, kind of increasingly interconnected world. Uh, it seems to me one of the themes of recent events, and I'm talking now about things like the pandemic, is that we're all more connected than we thought we were. And so there are these, uh, you know, these social, collective social good problems where, you know, we used to be able to assume that we could just pursue our own interests and everything would be fine. But now we discover that our interests interact with other people's interests. And um, I think that's true in business ecosystems as well. But it is it is definitely true in cybersecurity, right? I mean, um, I think you'll uh, you'll have probably a lot of experience with this. But if you've got really great cyber defenses, but one of your business partners has really bad cyber defenses, uh, that's an entry point into your uh, company as well, right? That's a that's a risk factor for your company. Well said, spot on. Means I think this pandemic has shown us clearly how connected we are whether we like it or don't like it globally. Cybersecurity is also showing us the same reality. And to your point, we can still compete, but we need to leverage uh, each other's competencies to deal with problems of this magnitude that could consume us all for lack of a better word. You know, it, it reminds me of, um, an initiative that uh, Cisco runs, and I'm sure many other companies do as well. If I remember correctly, it's called the CHILL Initiative, uh, Hyper Innovation Learning Lab, Cisco's Hyper Innovation Learning Lab. And the whole idea is to bring together some of the best minds from competing companies to a location for a week, let's say, and have them brainstorm ideas about pressing issues. But the important thing is at the end of the week, at the end of the retreat, they have to come up with something that is, you know, that is converted to a product that is marketable. So in other words, come up with a solution, um, which is supported by that, by that team of uh, representatives from different companies. So it's like creating a collaborative solution to deal with a larger problem than what they could handle by themselves. Mm. And I think that kind of a collaborative partnership mindset has to prevail if we want to succeed against these kinds of problems, um, which is kind of, you know, which is engulfing everybody, every possible network, every possible node. So, 
that's 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 so spot on yeah no i agree uh, you know the way i like to think about it sometimes and the way i uh, i put it to people sometimes is it's better to going forward as you move into the future it's better to have a smaller portion of an expanding pie than to have an expanding portion of a shrinking pie right and i think if we don't watch out if we continue to behave in many of the ways that have worked well for us in the past, you know, these very independent ways, then we're in the future going to find ourselves, yeah, we're going to have a bigger, bigger portion of that pie, but the pie is going to be shrinking. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think uh, we need to adopt different mindsets. Um, you know, I worked in the auto industry for a long time, and one of the things the auto industry is not so good at in my view is and I, I discovered this in one of my jobs there i had a job there where i had to interact a lot with our suppliers and i discovered we weren't very popular with them uh, because we were much bigger and we were you know we were pounding the pounding the crap out of them right i mean anytime they figured out a new way to get some more margin we took the biggest part of it from them um, and so uh, i think that kind of that kind of you know, behavior is not going to be healthy for ecosystems. And I mean, we're getting a bit far field of cybersecurity here, but, but I think the principles are the same. Absolutely. The principles are very much the same. Uh, uh, you know, as you may have seen in my book on cybersecurity readiness, the, the commitment, yep. preparedness, and discipline framework that I came up with uh, that, that identifies 17 cybersecurity success factors. When I look at these factors, at a very high level, we are talking about people, process, and technology issues. Uh, when you take a deeper dive, then you get more specific about what these factors entail and how, how you address them. But at a higher level, it's still, for lack of a better word, a game of finding the right fit, the right balance between the people element, the process element, and the technology element and how we find the balance and how we sustain it, that's what's gonna make the difference. It is one thing to come up with a solution and implement it. It is another thing to be able to sustain it. And that's why I, um, I'm big on creating and sustaining a um, high performance information security culture, because unless you create that kind of an environment, you kind of etch it in the DNA of the organization, you're un unlikely to sustain the good work that got started because of say X, Y, and Z who may have moved on. Mm. The good work has to go on. So how are you going to um, uh, embed that fabric of or the blueprint of robust cybersecurity practices? Uh, how do you do that? And that's where you have to work on the cultural aspects. And these are tough challenges. So they often get ignored. And we try to get away by focusing on, um, you know, specific controls and making sure those controls are in place, uh, especially the technical ones. And I'm all for controls, but do recognize that the controls are also on the people side of things, on the mm -hmm. governance side of things. So the human factor plays a huge role. Um, just a little while ago, I was talking with a human factors expert from NATO. Uh, she advises NATO on how to manage uh, the human involvement in cybersecurity strategies. And she made a very interesting point. She says, Dave, just imagine somebody holding a key position in cybersecurity, but has gets intimidated and so it's like the example you shared about this belligerent CEO. So the cybersecurity guy had to deal with a boss who was kind of overly dominating. And as a result, even when they were receiving good intelligence that should have been passed on to the right channels, they were scared of the repercussions and went silent on some of these alerts yeah. and that, that could hurt the company uh, as, and I'm, I'm not gonna take the name of some of these companies, but that's precisely what has happened 
with some of the major breaches. I'm not saying it has happened because of the human personality trait, but it is because someone dropped the ball even after receiving the intelligence. So, so yeah, that's kind of any, uh, yeah, please. Well, I would just say that, um, again, we're agreeing, but, um, you know, I, one of my uh, jobs real, somewhat early in my career was uh, I was at an automaker and I was managing a group of really talented software developers that were responsible for a lot of the systems that were inside the assembly plant. So these are the production critical systems. And, you know, this is back to your point about controls, right? So that, yeah, we had controls in place, but, uh, you know, and we'd have people come around from time to time at regular intervals who were certifying that the controls were in place. But, you know, the guys who um, who worked for me at the time, they that we would sit around at lunch sometimes and chuckle, right? So like if every single one of them with their knowledge of these production critical systems, uh, used to talk about if we put together a list of the 20 top ways to take down an assembly plant, none of those would be, uh, would be, uh, you know, would be uh, addressed by any of the controls that, that the, the auditors were basically spending a lot of time thinking about, which is not to say those aren't important too, but I guess, I guess what I'm saying, and I think I'm agreeing with something you said a few minutes ago, which is uh, the people side. Is, is super important. And this isn't just the people side is important because there's weaknesses there. You need the very resourceful people like the ones uh, that I'm talking about who knew everything about the, you know, the code and the software that was running this company's uh, assembly plants. Uh, you needed those guys uh, because just doing a formal analysis of controls and what controls were on place left huge gaping holes without the the deep knowledge of these talented individuals who were you know really close to the systems what they could do and and where they might get in trouble so um uh yeah couldn't agree more that it's not just a, it's not just a technical problem right well rob i think uh, we can end on that note um, once again thank you very much for your time it's truly a pleasure to have you come on board and share your wisdom with uh, with me and my listeners it's been a pleasure yeah i've enjoyed it a lot too so thank you for inviting me um best uh, best to you and uh, going forward thank you very much and your listeners yeah a special thanks to professor robert austin for his time and insights if you like what you heard please leave the podcast a rating and share it with your network Also subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. Thank you for listening and I'll see you in the next episode. The information contained in this podcast is for general guidance only. The discussants assume no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast. The information contained in this podcast is provided on an as-is basis with no guarantee of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. The opinions and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the discussants and not of any organization.